Let's open our Bibles again, uh, beginning at Job 20. It's <coughs> Louis Armstrong, uh, who of course famously sang uh, It's a Wonderful World, and I can assure you that I'm not going to sing it, but let me uh, give you a flavour of, of the lyrics. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright, blessed day, the dark, sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colours of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky, and also in the faces of people going by, I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. It's a wonderful world. And in so many ways, it really is. It's a wonderful world that God has set us in. Except, of course, if you're someone like Job, who has encountered mishap upon mishap, and has his very trust in God tested to the uttermost. He has lived an upright life. He has walked with God and served him gladly. Uh, he has used his wealth and he had plenty of wealth to bless the poor and the ignorant, the community around him. We see that in chapter 4, from the mouth of all people, Eliphaz. But one day, Satan uh, entered the heavenly court and when the Lord pointed to his servant Job, Satan said, well, you know, uh, what has he got to lose by serving God? You have hedged him around. His health is secure. He's got a nice family. He's got loads of wealth. But remove that hedge and he will curse God. And God, to vindicate his servant Job, gives permission to Satan to test Satan. And we see the, the calamities that fall on Job. Uh, he loses the farm, his home, his children, his health. His skin erupts in sores. And he sits among the ashes, scraping himself with a shard. Enter Job's three friends. For them, it's not so much a wonderful world as a well-ordered world. They have their theory of how things work out. The good are rewarded and the evildoer is punished in this life and with visible effects. So the person who does wickedly meets with calamity, but the godly person will prosper. And according to them, the world is made up of godly people whose flocks are multiplying and enjoy good health and wicked, God-hating people who are facing terminal illness, who are depressed and lonely, and whose birthdays pass unnoticed. And the friends, and I uh, hope you, you, you noticed that as uh, uh, we were reading together, they've, they've moved considerably, haven't they, from coming genuinely to help Job, uh, to trying to uh, force on him uh, their theories, and they are no longer simply implying that Job is guilty of some sin, but they are actually uh, suggesting things that he has done uh, which are, are patently not true but would fit 
uh, their theory. So picture, uh, picture the two who are uh, involved in chapter 20. Job, uh, emaciated, deathly pale, his eyes sunken, his flesh raw from the constant scratching of his sores. A horrible smell from him. Uh, he's admitted earlier that even his wife cannot bear the smell of his breath. He moves slowly and with intensity and having described his terrible experiences declares uh, in the previous readings with his eyes flashing uh, in this moment of certainty I know that my Redeemer lives and that on the last day uh, he will stand on the earth and my eyes will see him Uh, he has this moment of insight that God will be his vindicator Uh, after his death God will justify him. Picture now the sharp intake of breath uh, as his friends uh, take in what he has said. There's Zophar. Zophar, his well-fed frame filling his robe with his silver rings and his chubby fingers, perfumed with sandalwood and frankincense, uh, his servants holding the camels. He steps forward now, continuing this contest with Job. So here we have Zophar uh, repeat eloquently the theory that all the friends share of what we've called immediate retribution. God comes down in punishment on those who do wickedly. Then Job replies, the theory doesn't fit because the wicked prosper. And then Eliphaz is going to respond and we're going to see Eliphaz trying to force the facts to fit the theory, coming up with these imaginary sins of Job. And Job replies again, no, the facts don't fit Life as we know it, because not only do the wicked prosper, the wicked are never punished in this life. And in pulling it all together, we have a a lesson uh, as to how we as believers are to live when we have seasons of our lives also, when pleasing God doesn't seem to yield the dividend that we expect And instead, pleasing God seems to result in life taking a downward turn for us. How are we to cope in those situations? What will be the anchor of your soul and mine when uh, we are perplexed with the turn that life has taken us? So, we have Zophar coming and basically reiterating eloquently the theory it's uh, remarkable isn't it this is a, a, a beautiful book Job is a wonderful piece of literature and uh, God hasn't given the, all the best lines to Job many of the most uh, colourful and eloquent lines come from the mouths of his comforters and that's so uh, in this first chapter after peevishly saying that he's been offended by Job's rebuke, he reminds Job of what he claims that the people of all, the elders, have always said. And three ways in which this theory of retribution works out. First of all, he says, wickedness is like a worm in the bud. A worm in the 
the, the rosebud. Uh, wickedness offers fleeting pleasure. But these pleasures last only a moment. The worm consumes the bloom. Even though the wicked person's pride reaches the heavens, he will perish forever like his own dung. His life will literally be down the toilet. He'll disappear. He'll leave nothing but mortgaged children. Secondly, Zophar says in verses 12 to 22, the wicked is poisoned by sweet evil. And Zophar pictures uh, the wicked person as craving some food, some, some delight. Can't enough of this food. He's gorging himself in this food. But no, no sooner has he consumed the food, but uh, his stomach cramps. And he's, he's retching and he wants to bring up this food. It's poisoning his system. But nevertheless, he still craves more. He can't get enough of this that, that is destroying him. And thirdly, he meets with the overwhelming wrath of God. God's arrows rain down on him. God has his arrow trained upon him. God's archers let fly. His arrows pierce the wicked. They go through his liver. He pulls the arrow from his liver. Total darkness lies in wait for his treasures. And for him, a fire so fierce, it needs no fanning to consume him. It's a terrible picture. Now, it's at one level, it's a true picture of the destiny of the wicked. This is where we need to, to handle the words of the comforters so carefully because, you see, they speak orthodoxy. It's just that they're, they're pretty bad at handling the orthodoxy. And what Zophar is saying is true of the destiny of the wicked. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, the the great preacher in uh, 18th century New England, uh, his most famous sermon, the one that uh, most people who've ever heard of him know about, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, a revival sermon preached at Northampton in New England. Uh, It was preaching from the text of Deuteronomy 32-35, Their foot shall slip in due time. And Edwards' words are are not dissimilar to, to what so far saying here the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice directs the bow to your heart and strains at the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being being made drunk with your blood And Zophar, similarly, he's painted uh, what's actually an accurate picture of the the, the wicked and unrepentant in hell. This is what their experience will be like. Remorse over lost pleasure. Cravings that can never be satisfied but only torment. And the arrows of wrath finding their mark. Anyone who is unconverted ought to heed those words because that is exactly uh, what we are to flee from in coming to Christ. That is why Jesus is such a great saviour because hell is such a dreadful place. It's an awful place of of torment and endless uh, ruin. 
And it's right that it should be portrayed in the, the most vivid, lurid colors because uh, we would want to warn anyone from slipping into such a destiny. The, the trouble uh, is not that Zophar's words are, are wrong, but that they are misplaced because Job is a saved man. Job is, is a believer. Job has turned uh, from his sin. He's not suffering God's wrath uh, uh, for, for, for sin. And in any case, that, that wrath will be not in this life, but in the life to come. And so Job responds. And essentially, uh, what Job is saying in chapter 21 is, uh, okay, Zophar, uh, fair enough, but your theory does not fit the facts Your theory doesn't fit real life as we know it. The wicked prosper. Look around you. It's not the way you portray things. You say the wicked's joys for a moment. Well, I see plenty of people who are wicked who live long and prosperous lives. They have troops of well-fed children running around their homes laughing and playing. Their flocks multiply. Their bulls and their rams, they never uh, prove infertile. They go down to the grave in peace. And yet, these are the very people who are, who are not just indifferent to God, but they reject God vigorously. They say to God, he said, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is almighty that God that we should serve him? What would we gain by praying to him? Now, these are Job's words thousands of years ago. And yet, how contemporary they feel. If you've, I hope we've all, uh, sought to engage our friends and neighbours with the gospel. And so often when we do that, this is exactly the kind of response that we get. I'm doing perfectly well. Thank you very much. Without God, what would I have to gain from praying? I don't need your religion. I'm doing fine by myself. I can get on fine without the Bible. Job saw that in his own day. Uh, in our day, these are uh, the, the ones whose posh homes have the God delusion on the coffee table and outside the, the Porsche and the drive. They are prospering. They are getting on well, it would seem, without God. Reality doesn't match the prediction of the system, complains Job. And as we were singing earlier, Asaph, the psalmist, uh, he had to wrestle with that same uh, problem also. Why do the wicked prosper? Why does God not intervene? Why is there not obvious justice in this world? It's no good, Job says, saying to me that their children uh, are punished. That's no good. Let them repay the man himself. Let sorry, him repay the man himself so that he will know it. For what does he care about the family he leaves behind when his allotted months come to an end? Even in death, the wicked seem to do well. Verses 23 to 26, uh, Job is comparing two men. Uh, one lived a wicked life and he's healthy to the end. He dies in his sleep. The other man uh, is one who dies in bitterness of soul, maybe just as Job is expecting to do. And they're laid out side by side. 
And there's no difference. The worm sees no difference in the two decaying bodies. But the one who lived a wicked life has a great send-off with many mourners. And they see to it that uh, he has a fancy tomb which will be guarded. And people speak warmly of his legacy. It's not so true. The guy here, Robert Mugabe, responsible for the death of millions of people. Either because he set his men to actually kill people or because of the folly of taking land from white farmers to satisfy his dogma, resulting in the starvation of millions in uh, Zimbabwe. And yet at his death recently, celebrated as the great national hero. There will be national memorials to him, one worthy of admiration. There seems to be no justice. Enter Eliphaz, chapter 22. Job's observations have been powerful. Difficult to see how you could argue with what Job is saying. He's simply telling life as it is. Wicked people seem to get on well in this life. Now, what do you do if you are a rigid thinker like Zophar and Eliphaz? Well, you try to distort reality to fit your theory. Have you ever struggled um, getting a flat pack from Ikea uh, to take shape? You know, there's always that moment when, uh, lots of nodding heads, the moment that comes when it looks as though it should fit, but it's not quite there. And so what's the temptation? A little bit of force, maybe the hammer, to try to get this unyielding uh, piece of furniture to fit together. That's what Eliphaz is about to do now with, with the facts, with the truth. Reality doesn't fit the system well, so let's, let's add a little pressure. Let's make up some facts. And that's where his speech becomes the most appalling so far. Uh, previous speeches by the comforters have simply suggested that Job must be concealing some sin. Eliphaz makes up sin. He accuses Job of things for which there is absolutely no foundation. Listen to how this so-called friend speaks to Job. Is not your wicked as great? Are not your sins endless? And then he, demand, he accuses Job of demanding security from his brothers for no reason and for leaving people uh, to be naked at night. Now this is a reference to the, what the law forbade. Uh, if, if someone, if you let somebody say some money and required a a pledge from them that they would give it back. You could take their cloak. Now the law said you mustn't take uh, the cloak of one of your brothers or sisters overnight. Okay, they were an Israelite. Uh, they, they were not to be uh, exposed to the elements at night. You gave the cloak back before uh, uh, nightfall. And this is exactly what Eliphaz is accusing Job of having done, improperly taking a pledge from one of his brothers. Uh, he's accusing him of giving no bread or water to the hungry, 
of turning his back on the, the widow and the orphan, those, those special categories that the law uh, singled out for special care by the Israelite. Job, you didn't, you didn't tend to their needs. You turned your back on them, Eliphaz is saying. And therefore, this is why God is punishing you. Now this from the man who in chapter 4 listed the different ways in which Job had been practically kind to those who were in need. He had provided for uh, the widow and the fatherless, and he had compassion for the ignorant. These are the words of the religious fanatic. Eliphaz has such a narrow, frenzied commitment to one particular theory and dogma that if the facts don't fit, then you alter the facts. It's the same kind of manipulation that you sometimes see in uh, people who claim to be uh, miracle workers, but aren't. And, and so they invent cures to suit their theory. And Job has too much integrity to, to fall in uh, with this bogus uh, accusation that Eliphaz brings. Eliphaz is trying to squash the facts to fit a theory. Christianity does the very reverse. Christianity enables us to look at the world around us and to say, that's just as God says. It makes sense of life around us. It makes sense of our very existence. It answers the, the, the question, why is there something and not nothing? Answer the question of an awareness of the eternal, the human mind, our desire for a final vindication. C.S. Lewis uh, made this uh, very powerful statement. He said, uh, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That's really good, isn't it? He's saying that Christianity sheds light on the world, makes sense of the world. You don't need to, to, to squeeze the, the observable facts into a system. Christianity makes sense of what we see around us, makes sense of me, makes sense of you. Of creation. And then we come to this extraordinary appeal from Eliphaz. Verse 21 to the end of the chapter, we have an altar call from Eliphaz. And it's bizarre. He sees Job as having been stubborn and intransigent in insisting on his righteousness. He needs to acknowledge his sins, turn from his evil ways. He needs to take away the idols from his heart. If he throws away his gold nuggets and makes God his gold and submits to God, God will bless him. He will know God as his friend. God will answer his prayers. His plans will be successful and God will answer his prayers for others. Now, Eliphaz's altar call is terrible at so many levels. Uh, notice the appeal to, uh, to Job's material good, you know, and God will bless your plans. You know, he'll restore your prosperity, in essence. 
he's also suggesting that Job is someone who is refusing to repent but needs to repent. To pressurize someone to confess sin they've never committed is to try to violate their integrity. And fortunately, Job is of sterner stuff than to allow himself to be violated in that way. And so Job responds in chapters 23 and 24. His problem, he says, is not with his friend's false accusation, but his real dilemma is that he is vexed that he cannot meet with God and present his case before him. He's confident that God would not press charges against him. When he was fully examined and tried and tested by God, he would pass through verse 10 of chapter 23. But he knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Uh, There's a confidence, the same confidence that he's had earlier when he said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the same time, there's awe. For this is an almighty God. The God he longs to appear before is awesome and unchangeable. He stands alone, God, uh, Job says, and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. What a, what a biblical view Job has. This is uh, in the, 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 the words of, of C.S. Lewis again in Narnia. This God is no tame lion. He's not domesticated. Chapter 24, Job goes on to point out the conflict again between his friend's theory that the wicked are always judged and the good prosper in the world and the reality of the world as we see it. Uh, he says that the wicked are not brought to account for what they do. And Job paints a tragic picture of the world, this sad world in all its suffering. These are very poignant Ten portraits in chapter 24 of a sighing world, a world of oppression. Godly, says Job, uh, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 24, look in vain for set times when God brings people to justice. Instead, what happens is that the wicked and the wealthy wicked move boundaries and add to their fields. That was something which uh, Israelites were forbidden to do. They were not to move boundary stones. They were not to add one field to another to extend their property rights at the expense of their weaker neighbour. And yet, Job says, that's what I see all around me. Think historically of, of, of Scottish history, of the oppression uh, in the, the Highland clearances when exactly that kind of thing happened. He says, the poor forage for food, children finding scraps on the wasteland. And again, we, we make it contemporary. We think of the, the, the children who go scavenging for something to eat on some of the great mountains of garbage outside cities like Mexico City and all the mega cities of the world. The poor, under the oppression of the rich. He speaks about the poor naked in night, drenched by the rain in the day. They work hard in the fields and carry grain, but they have no food. They're bearing food for others, but they have no food to eat themselves. 
They crush olives and tread grapes, but they go thirsty. I'm reading this and I'm thinking uh, personally of, of times when I've left my, my comfort and have gone to uh, be with the Karen in, in Thailand and seen abject poverty, children uh, running around naked in, in the, the villages and the mountains, uh, refugees uh, who have been uh, forced by the, the military in Burma to, to flee in the rainy season and quite literally uh, fulfill this picture that Job has of the poor uh, with nothing to cover them and the rain falling down. A mother carrying a dead baby in a black plastic bag to bury in a shallow grave. But, says Job, God charges no one with wrongdoing. The wicked seem to get off scot-free. In the dark, men break into houses and stay indoors at night. It kind of conjured up in, in my mind the, the image of the kind of violence that accompanies drug dealing. The ghettos of the underworld. It's a complex world, Job is saying. And it doesn't fit your theory. Verses 18 to the end of the chapter are they're difficult verses to, um, to expound. Uh, it, it seems that Job is agreeing with his friends, but Job can hardly, that can hardly be uh, the, the thrust of these last verses. It uh, seems that uh, he's agreeing that the wicked are cut off in their prime. He's just denied that. Uh, the, if you have the English Standard Version, uh, they translate by inferring that Job is saying, this is what you have said. You say the wicked are like froth and so on. Or some understand it as Job is, is willing uh, the judgment of God to come on uh, those oppressors. May their portion of the land be cursed. May the grave snatch away. And so on. Now, at the end of this section, Job makes no pretense of having everything sorted out in the way that his friends declare that they have everything sorted out. But what is Job doing? He is resting on the character of God. There is one thing that he knows, and that is that God is good. And if the facts don't fit this, then he will wrestle with reality and seek to arrive at understanding rather than make the facts, squash the facts into a theory. And he's in good company. Jeremiah, for one, couldn't understand why the wicked prospered and weren't judged. Chapter 12, verse 1 of Jeremiah you are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet, I would speak to you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? Job is one with Jeremiah here in questioning 
like a faithful believer. Isn't it wonderful that, that God doesn't shut down our questioning? But rather, he calls us to, to, to integrity and to ask the questions that life uh, makes us ask whilst resting on the bedrock of his character. And so Job, like Jeremiah, begins by acknowledging and holding on to what he knows to be completely and unchangeably true about God. God is righteous. God is good all the time. He is unchangingly good. And he commits to that, even as he grapples with what he can't understand. And that's always the the best place for us also. You know, as we go through life and and we, we get hit by things that kind of knock us off balance and we wonder. Maybe as Job wondered, is this the way God treats his friends? Then the word is encouraging us to hold fast to what we know to be true as we struggle with what we cannot understand. Hold fast to the character of God. Those of you that are using the Explore Notes for your your Bible readings, haven't the readings in Genesis been good? (laughs) The story of Joseph. I think there are a lot of parallels to to Joseph's experience and Job's experience. Think what it was for Job uh, to have had this up and down existence. There must have been so many times when Job quit. Joseph questioned God's justice. Uh, he's made a slave and he's promoted. No sooner is he promoted, but he's falsely accused uh, and put back into prison. He's elevated, promoted in prison. And then uh, when the door seems to uh, be opening for him for a release, uh, he's promptly forgotten about and languishes for another two years in prison. He must have been in exactly the same position as Job. Why is God treating me like this? But the story goes on. It's not finished at that point. God has marvelous purposes for Joseph. He's to be brought into a position of unparalleled usefulness and glory. And the story is not finished for Job either. Some of, some of us in the church family, some of you tonight, are going through dark valleys and wrestling with difficult questions. And how do we cope in those situations? Well, God remains true. himself. He is good all the time, even during the times when we cannot see how his goodness is being worked out. And the story is not finished. The story is simply unfolding. And even if in this life, unlike Job, Even if in this life 
we cannot see all the loose ends tied together. We know that there is a day coming when all the loose ends will be tied together. When all will be made clear. When we will have full vindication. When all our troubles will be behind. And we will see what God has done. And that it was all the time for our good and the wicked will be punished they will not escape God's wrath may God bless to us preaching of his holy word <clears throat> we're going to sing in closing a hymn of triumph of